Good morning, everyone. Uh, naming a child can be quite an ordeal because um, you want to find something meaningful, right? Perhaps you want something unique or different. Uh, perhaps you have a family name that you're considering. My name is, is a family name. Um, but you also don't want it to be too odd or too weird either. Uh, so here are the top 10 names for baby boys in America this year. Uh, Liam, Noah, Oliver, William, Elijah, James, Benjamin, Lucas, Mason, and Ethan. Now, interestingly, more than half of these are biblical names. Uh, Noah, Elijah, James, Benjamin, Lucas, that's Luke, um, and Ethan. And I think that's because biblical names have always been uh, popular, particularly for boys. Uh, there are many um, Hebrew names from the Old Testament that are popular. And then, if you stop and think about it, some of the most common names of all time are the names of Jesus' disciples. Matthew, Peter, Andrew, John, James, Thomas. They're all, all extremely popular, all except for one disciple's name. Have you ever met anyone named Judas? Um, probably not, because you wouldn't name your kids after Judas, because Judas will forever live in infamy as the one disciple who betrayed Jesus. Right? We all know the basic facts about Judas. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in church, uh, even if you don't consider yourself a Bible scholar, you know that uh, Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them was named Judas, and Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. That he, uh, he made a deal secretly with the Jewish leaders to have Jesus arrested by the Roman authorities. And so he continues to always be known as the betrayer. In fact, every time you read about him in the gospel accounts, he's described as the one who betrayed Jesus. We know his name. We know his basic story. But here's what most of us don't know. We don't really know why he betrayed Jesus. And we also don't realize, or we're not aware, that the very thing that was lurking inside of Judas that led him to do what he did is also lurking inside of each one of us and might lead us to do things that can bring tremendous hurt and pain and sorrow in our lives as well, just like it did in Judas's life. And so today, I want to tell you Judas's story. Um, his story is connected also to the story of a woman named Mary. I want to tell you a little bit about her. Not Jesus' mother, Mary. There are several Marys in the New Testament, but a different woman named Mary. And then her story is connected to this bottle of olive oil. So we'll talk about that as well. Now, let's start with Judas. Uh, do you know what Judas' problem was? Judas was unable to let go of his expectations of Jesus. When he began to follow Jesus, he, like all of the other disciples, began to see there was something unique and special about Jesus. The things Jesus said, the way he taught, uh, the insights he had, and then particularly the things he did. And he could do miracles. And after a while, like all of the disciples, we don't know much about Judas's background, but like all of the disciples, he began to believe that Jesus might really be the Messiah, he might really be the one that's been long promised to the people of Israel. The one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. This Messiah that would come and restore the kingdom for Israel. 
And what that meant for Jewish people was liberating them from the Romans. Israel was part of the Roman Empire at that time. It meant purging Israel of foreigners. It meant installing a new government. And and all of the disciples, as they're following Jesus, and they believe that he's the one that's going to install this new government, they start believing they're going to have roles in the new government. In fact, one of their arguments was, when Jesus brings the new kingdom, who's going to get which role in the new government? government. And so as Jesus does all these amazing things, and he always talks about this new kingdom, this new government he's going to bring, the disciples become pretty convinced he has all the marks and characteristics of the Messiah. But for Judas, it seemed like there was a few things that just kept bugging him. You see, Jesus was too soft and passive at times, If you're going to be Messiah, if you're going to be the king, right, you need to be a little more like like David. Remember the warrior king from the Old Testament? Sometimes you're going to have to get aggressive. Sometimes you're going to have to spill a little bit of blood. Jesus was also too nice to the Romans. I mean, the Jews hated the Romans. And yet they couldn't just get, they couldn't get Jesus riled up enough to hate the Romans like they did. And if you're going to kick the Romans out and defeat them, you got to start by hating them. Uh, Jesus also, he, he just wasn't very organized. And he wasn't strategic enough. I mean, if you're going to set up a kingdom, you need more than a few fishermen. And just look at the guys that he picked, right? You could pick some better guys. I mean, Thomas... He's always doubting. Andrew, he doesn't have any initiative. Peter, he's sticking his foot in his mouth. Bartholomew, he's a nobody. Who's Bartholomew? What's he going to do, right? Jesus needs to be more strategic and intentional and organized. And then the thing that bugged Judas the most is Jesus just didn't really care about money. Because if you're going to build a new kingdom... If you're going to install a new government, if you're going to raise an army to defeat the Romans, you've got to raise some money. You've got to care about those kinds of things. And Judas was a money guy. He cared about those things. And yet every time he turns around, it's like Jesus is giving their money away. Right? In fact, one time a guy comes to Jesus, and he's really wealthy, and he says he wants to join the gang. He wants to be a part of the people following Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, but first you have to sell everything and give it away, and then you can join our club. And Judas is like, what in the world? You've got to care more about money, Jesus. And you see, as Judas follows Jesus for three years, right, He just keeps noticing over and over. Jesus is just too soft. He's too nice to the Romans, right? He's not very organized. And he doesn't care that much about building up this this money and this treasure in order to to launch this new kingdom. And and even though he looks like the Messiah, and even though sometimes he he talks like the Messiah, and, and Judas had a very clear picture of what that would be, right? It would be somebody who is assertive, who isn't soft, who does care about money, who's organized, who hates the Romans. It just felt like Jesus isn't lining up with what he expected the Messiah to be. And the longer he followed Jesus, the more frustrated Judas got. Until one day, he finally broke. Look at what happens in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 6. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany, 
in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, John tells us the same story in his book, but he provides a few extra details. So let's read his version. This is what he says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, because that's her love language, acts of service, right? While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. He's a quality time guy. Then Mary, she's a gifts person, by the way, took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Uh, So Bethany is this little town. It's right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, This is right before Jesus comes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And we'll read about him coming into Jerusalem next week. But before he arrives there, he decides to visit his friends in this little town outside of the gates called Bethany. And they host a dinner for him. And he invites, uh, or or they invite other people, and it's at this man named Simon's house, and it's in Jesus' honor. It's probably to celebrate and show gratitude to Jesus because he had miraculously healed Lazarus. Perhaps he had also healed this man named Simon. And then in the middle of this dinner, Mary, again, not Jesus' mother Mary, but a different Mary who he was friends with. He knew already. Mary gets up and she takes a pint, it says, of perfume and she pours it on his feet and his head. Now, now the word perfume is an English translation and I don't know that it's that helpful because it's a little bit misleading because the perfume that she poured on him was not like the perfume that we have today. The way this word is usually used, it just means oil or an ointment that's based in oil. Typically, it would have been olive oil because they had mainly olives in that part of the world. They didn't have avocado oil like we did. They had olive oil. And then sometimes they would take the oil and they would just add spices to it or fragrances to it or potentially essential oils to it to give it a rich aroma or smell. And we're told that this particular oil or ointment that she pours on him is made from nard or what's also called spike nard. And spike nard comes from this this flowering plant, a plant that's much like honeysuckle, but it's only found in the Himalayas, which if you know your geography, is nowhere near the Middle East, right? It's found in the Himalayas, and it's only, this plant is only found between 10,000 and 15,000 feet of elevation. So, so this is a very rare scent or spice or oil. It would have been extremely expensive. And because of this, we mostly think Mary must have been fairly wealthy. In, in order to have... A pint of it, and this is a pint, by the way, we're later told would have cost about $50,000. So she's probably wealthy in order to own this. 
It's probably something that she treasured. It would have been something very important to her. It would have been something she kept and maybe just used a little bit every now and then, but she would have treasured it her entire life. And yet, at this dinner, she takes the bottle and she pours the entire thing all over Jesus. And here's what immediately happens next. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. That's where we find out how much it was worth. So maybe that's $30,000 for you or $50,000. Maybe it's $100,000, but it's worth a lot of money. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So she pours this outrageously expensive oil all over Jesus. And Judas is sitting there and he's saying, I can't believe that she just did that. And I can't believe Jesus is letting her do that. And he starts elbowing the other disciples. Can you, do you believe what just happened? Do you know what we could have done with all of the money we could have gotten by selling that? And she just pours it wastefully all over his head and his feet. And John tells us an important detail, right, at this point. Judas was keeper of the money. And John also tells us that Judas used to skim a little bit off of the top. You always have to watch the money guy, right? Whoever keeps the money, they always have the temptation of taking a little bit off the top, right? Because they know there's plenty there and and nobody's going to miss a little bit and, and I can pay it back later, right? And so Judas had that temptation and he would always pilfer a little bit off the top. But the main point was he was in charge of the money. He was the money guy. He was the CFO of this whole operation. He was in charge of fundraising. And he can't believe what just happened. And so he he riles up all the other disciples. and, And if we go back to the story in Matthew chapter 26, here's what happens next. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This ointment or this perfume, it could have been sold at a high price and the money could have been given to the poor. And look at how Jesus responds. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, this isn't really about the poor, right? They didn't care about the poor that much. In fact, if you read through the rest of the stories about Jesus' disciples, you see that they don't have these bleeding hearts. They're not always talking about the poor or giving money to the poor. And Jesus knows that's not really what was that important to them. But Jesus wants to address it anyways. And so he says, look, what she did was a beautiful thing, 
The poor you will always have with you. And we can read that and feel like maybe Jesus is talking flippantly about the poor. But actually he's quoting a verse from the Old Testament. In the law of Moses, these exact words appear. It says, the poor you will always have with you. But then it goes on to say, therefore, always be generous towards the poor in your midst. So because they're always there, you always have opportunities to show God's generosity. And so Jesus is alluding to that, and yet he's saying, but in this moment, what she did was the right thing. It was a beautiful thing. It was extravagant. I mean, the generosity of taking something so precious and just pouring it all over Jesus. Jesus is basically saying, she's the model here. She's the example. What she did needs to be honored and pointed to. And remember, this is the story that needs to be told over and over and over. It's a simple story. She took this uh, expensive, but very simple oil. And she gave it. She poured it out for me. But for Judas, it's the final straw. It's like this thing is what sends him over the edge Because look at what happens next. Then, and the little word that's used in Greek there means in that moment, because of what just happened, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, more money, that's what he's focused on, And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. You see, for Judas, it was just too much. He couldn't take it anymore. Jesus, you're just, you're too passive, you're too soft, you're too nice to the Romans, you're not organized enough, and you just keep giving our money away. Like, why won't you get with the program? Why won't you get with the plan? Right? You keep pulling these stunts where we have something that could be so useful to us and to our cause, and she just pours it over your head, and you say that it's beautiful? And it's like the final straw for him. Look, Jesus, if you're not going to be a real Messiah, if you're not going to do the things that a Messiah needs to do, well, then you've left me no choice than to take matters into my own hands. And so that's what he does. He goes off and he takes matters into his own hands. And we have to stop and ask the question for a second. Think about this. How can somebody who's given his life to following Jesus, he's been following him for three years. He's left family, we guess. We don't really know. He's maybe left a job. He's left his town to just follow Jesus, to be a part of this thing. Jesus called him specifically. Jesus has invested in him. He's given his life to Jesus. How can somebody be so sold out and bought in and then turn around and betray Jesus? How can somebody do something that's so reversed and so opposite so quickly? 
And we ask, how can that happen? And yet, it happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, don't we see people all the time stand on an altar and face each other and say, I love you more than anything else in the world, and I'm going to give my entire life to you. I want to spend every single day of the rest of my life with you. And within a few months or years, they end up saying, I can't stand you anymore. I don't want to be with you anymore. I don't want to see you another day of my life anymore. And we ask, how does that happen? And the answer is quite simple. It's this. There's tremendous power in unmet expectations. Let's put that on the screen and just make sure we all get that. There is tremendous power in unmet expectations. Think about a marriage that doesn't work. Think about that job or jobs that you've had that haven't panned out. Think about relationships that have broken up. Think about any relational frustration or anger or resentment that you felt towards other people. And chances are at the very center of it are unmet expectations. You see, for Judas, he had a picture of who Jesus should be and what Jesus should do. He had a whole set of expectations for Jesus, and Jesus just kept letting him down. Jesus would not meet his expectations. And here's the deal. When it comes to God in our own lives, we do the same thing. We have all sorts of expectations about what God is supposed to be like or what Jesus is supposed to be like. We have expectations about what God will do for us, what Jesus will do for us. Expectations that sometimes go unmet. And when they do, when God isn't blessing us in the way we think, protecting us in the way he should, providing for us in the way we believe he ought to. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we have a couple of options. First, we can say, like Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the other disciples, we can say, you know what? Following you hasn't gone the way I thought it was going to be, Jesus. It's taken a couple of strange twists and turns, and you're not the kind of Messiah we thought you were going to be. But we're learning to trust in you. And we're learning that your way is always better than our way. And your perspective is always so much bigger than our perspective. And so my best option when when you don't meet my expectations is to take those expectations and just pour them out. Let go of them. Surrender them back to Jesus. And that's essentially what Mary does. In this one act of generosity and worship and gratitude towards Jesus, she does something that I think is so deeply symbolic. It's a picture for all of us. It's almost as if she's saying, here are my expectations and my hopes and my dreams and my plans. And she's pouring them out on Jesus. But that's hard to do. 
It's hard to let go of our expectations. It was hard for Judas. And just like him, we're tempted by his way. I mean, none of us would ever think of ourselves as a Judas. We would never think of ourselves as actually betraying Jesus. But any time that you say, or I say, you know what, I think my plan is better than your plan, Jesus. I think my way is better than your way. I think what I think you should be doing right now is better than what you're actually doing right now. I'm tired of waiting on you, Jesus. And so I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. Whenever we do that, that's following the way of Judas. And that's what he did. And so he betrays Jesus. And we don't know, but perhaps he thought he was going to force Jesus' hand. Perhaps he thought that if by turning Jesus over to the Roman authorities, Jesus would finally say, okay, and he would get violent, and he would get mad, and he would turn into the Messiah that they've finally been waiting for him to turn into. It's almost as if Judas is just trying to force Jesus' hand. And of course we know, Jesus lets himself be arrested and then ultimately crucified. And when Judas sees what happens, he's overcome with remorse, with guilt, with shame. And we know it's a tragic ending to his story. And it's a caution for all of us. And it's a question for all of us. It's a question we have to, to end with. And it's simple. Where are there expectations in your life that are being unmet? And what are you doing with that frustration? Are we digging our heels in? Are we quietly taking matters into our own hands? Are we clinging tight to this idea that I know what's best for my life and I know what you should be doing right now, God, better than you do? Are we quietly hoping that Jesus will fit into our plan and our agenda and our expectations instead of reshaping them? Or are we willing to take them and pour them out? Let go of them. Surrender them. Perhaps even say to Jesus, you know, this is frustrating, Jesus. But I'm going to trust you. You know, this is hard, Jesus, and I don't like it, and you're not doing what I'm wanting you to do right now, but I'm going to trust you. And I need help doing that. I don't even know how to do that, but I want to. You know, Jesus, if I was in charge right now, this is not the way I would do it, but I'm not in charge. You are. Which brings us back to Mary and her oil. This fragrant, rare, expensive oil that Mary uses. Somebody would do that for two reasons. They would pour oil on someone else's body in order to prepare a body for burial. And Jesus alludes to that. And of course the disciples don't really understand or don't know what to make of that. But people would also use oil like this 
to anoint a king. To say to someone else, you're the person we're gonna follow. You're the leader. You're the Lord. You are the king. Today, let's trust Jesus to be the king. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for Mary's example. May it be the model for us to follow, to take whatever we have and give it to you and trust you with it. And God, I pray for every single one of us here right now um, and whatever expectations we have in our lives that are not going the way we think they should. Whether it's personal conflict, whether it's issues in families, issues with work, whether it's something deep down inside that we've kept hidden from others. Maybe it's the, the brokenness of our world that's so frustrating right now. God, help us to take those hurts and those frustrations and bring them to you and trust you as the king. I pray this in your name. Amen.